Look up again in the fall of 2007. <laughs> We're going to take summer off. Yeah, I don't know. I'm just horsing around. Yeah, we'll take the, we'll take some, the summer months off, and, and then we'll pick up again in the fall. But uh, we're making progress through Nehemiah. Can you believe that summer's almost here? It's crazy. It's nuts. Uh, as we go to prayer tonight, we want to be praying for some of you guys know Chuck Stark. And um, he has really been going through a tough time with, uh, I'm reading this even as we're speaking here with, uh, he is uh, starting a new treatment with his oncologist, uh, plus uh, they also think he possibly has pneumonia in his right lung, so uh, he, he's not doing well. And here I see it's non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So uh, we'll be praying for Chuck and, uh, and his well-being tonight. Um, we'll continue to pray for our uh, for our country, for our leaders. We'll uh, thank the Lord that 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 wasn't a longer ordeal, that there weren't chemical weapons involved. You know, we we didn't know what we were getting into there, and God was gracious. So we have much to be thankful for. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as we begin tonight. Father, we do thank you. Uh, Even those of us that are in the deepest of pits have much to thank you for. And Father, uh, you, you know every circumstance and you know every situation. Uh, you, know, you know all things in our lives. You, you know, Lord, that even though we might look uh, fairly uh, calm and content, on the outside, you know the stirrings of our heart and the concerns and the anxieties and the pressures. And uh, to a degree, one degree or another, we're dealing with different things and with different issues. Uh, no one here is stress-free. No one here is anxiety-free because we're human. But you invite us to come to you and to cast all of our care upon you because you care for us. Uh, Lord, it's remarkable. You take care of us in ways that we are not cognizant of, that we are totally oblivious to. Uh, We we just don't have the ability to perceive all that you have done for us. But the things that we have observed and the things that we have seen, we say thank you uh, from the bottom of our hearts. We want to pray for uh, Chuck tonight because he is in a very, very difficult strait. And we pray that you will encourage his heart We pray, Lord, that you will encourage him from the scriptures and from your promises. Lord, help him to to know that you are doing a a work in his life, even as his body is decaying, that you are building the inner man, that that your hand is upon him and that you're doing a great work. And even as he's depleted physically, you're building great spiritual muscle in his life. So encourage him tonight. We do thank you, Lord for uh, the way that you interceded for our military as we were uh, in Iraq. It is remarkable that, uh, that more uh, casualties were not incurred. And we thank you for your good and gracious hand. We pray tonight for our president and for his advisors that great wisdom would be available to him. We, pray, we thank you, Lord, that he seeks you. And we pray, Lord, that he would listen to godly counsel, that he would listen to the scripture that he reads and that he would obey it and put it in practice. 
Uh, give him, Lord, discernment. Give him the wisdom that comes from above. And we would ask that for ourselves, too, because we're facing different issues in our lives and different situations. Uh, we need wisdom. No matter where we are in life, every guy in this room needs wisdom for what we're facing over the next day or two. Uh, for some, it's, a, it's an issue with our wives. For others, it's, a, it's an issue with a, a decision, a career decision. It might be an integrity issue. But we need wisdom, Lord, to do the right thing and to honor you and to follow you. Now, Lord, teach us from the life of these people uh, that, in whom you did such a great work. We, we've delighted, Lord, to get to know Nehemiah and, and his, his co-worker, Ezra, and how you use these men with their different gifts and their different responsibilities to achieve your work. You're still doing that, Lord. You use different men with different gifts and different uh, strengths to build your kingdom and to build your church. All of us have a place. All of us have a part. No man is insignificant. No work is small. No job is without merit. Encourage us in the post that you have placed us in, we pray in Jesus' name. We are in Nehemiah 8 for the second time. We were there last week, and I, I should apologize for those of you who were here last week, because what I attempted to do was to teach what I would normally take four sessions to teach on uh, interpreting the scriptures. And it was, it was admittedly a little disjointed, uh, because quite frankly, as I was up here, I was cutting and pasting and... Uh, and, and eliminating other things and, and trying to make it cohesive, and it was semi-successful. But uh, Nehemiah 8 is a tremendous passage. Nehemiah 8 is, uh, the focus of Nehemiah 8 is the Word of God. <clears throat> but the structure of Nehemiah 8 is, um, is holidays, believe it or not. Uh, when Christmas rolls around, we'll hear terms like, uh, or songs, uh, home for the holidays. What is a holiday? Well, a holiday, um, quite frankly, is a secularized term for a holy day. Holidays came from holy days. God is the one who instituted holy days. And holy days are found throughout the Bible because God has set the calendar of life. And you know, there is a calendar of life and there is a rhythm of life. We don't see it too much in Texas because of where we're situated on the globe. But you move a little, not too much north of here, and uh, you'll experience four seasons. And they're very unique, right? They're very unique. They're very distinct. Now, if you go way north, you won't get four seasons either. You'll just get cold all the time. Uh, but, you know, you get into, uh, I don't know, somebody help me. I've never lived in four seasons. Kansas. You don't all live in Kansas. Where else? Minnesota. They got four seasons there? Really? I, I don't think they got four seasons in Minnesota. We have four seasons here. We just get them in the same week. Yeah. Well, that, no, that's true. That's good. We have four seasons, usually within the same week. But um, you've got, uh, in the words of Carol King, that great uh, songwriter. How I many of you guys know Carol King? Okay. Tapestry. Just checking, just checking here as we do Jeopardy here. Uh, winter, spring, summer, or fall. You see? Four distinct, and that comes every year. Those are rhythms. That's a calendar that God has instituted. 
God is the originator of holy days. God is the originator of holidays. What is the first holiday? No, I'm talking about historically. What's the first holiday? Sabbath. Sabbath. The earliest, earliest chapters of Genesis, God instituted uh, a holiday. God was, God was the one who came up with a day off. And that's what a Sabbath is. God invented a day off. Uh, not only was there a Sabbath day, but God invented a Sabbath year. And then, as uh, Israel went along, God gave them festivals, and God gave them feasts, and God gave them holidays, which were, which were holy days. Uh, in, in Nehemiah 8, uh, excuse me, we're, we're going to see the centrality of the Word of God, but we're going to see that it's all built around, um, it's built around certain days, and it's very specific uh, these days. Now, how many of you guys were here last week? I'm just curious. Okay. Uh, last week we talked about the importance of interpreting the Word of God and how you interpret the Word of God. Notice if you would, I, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm going to quickly read uh, over um, 8. Now we're going to pick up tonight, actually we're going to pick up in verse 9. But, um, Notice, if you will, in Nehemiah 8, in verses 1 through 8, you have the intellectual response to the Word of God. So what are you talking about here? Well, let's read it. And all the people gathered as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate. Now, these were thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people. Uh, could have been 40, 50, 60,000 people. And they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Israel, then Israel, then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding, all the kids that were old enough to get it. And now note this. He did this on the first day of the seventh month, which in their calendar was the month of Timri. All right? So here we got a date set, the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it, from the word of God, before the square, which was in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And he goes on and says, Ezra stood on a wooden podium or a wooden platform. Um, and then in verse 5, you see the respect that they had for the word of God. You know, it was interesting, during the time of the Reformation, when the word of God became central again. You know, if you ever walk into a... Uh, a, a true Protestant church, what you're going to find is, uh, you're going to find, in most Protestant churches, you're going to find a pulpit uh, in the center of the, uh, of the platform. Uh, now, some of them, some of them have it off to the side and they're elevated. But, uh, you know, there is some methodology and there is some philosophy behind church architecture. Uh, you, you, now, you wouldn't know it to look at most churches. But one of the hallmarks and one of the uh, characteristics of Protestant churches is that the pulpit was central because the Word of God was to be central. Uh, when Martin Luther started the Reformation, and of course he didn't know that's what he was starting when God moved upon him, and he took a stand 
against um, the Roman Catholic Church and the teaching of indulgences. My son John just got back from, uh, he spent spring break with some buddies, and they were in Europe, and he was in Prague and uh, some other places, Poland. And, but he was telling me his favorite place was in Prague, this great cathedral, that it took them 200 years to build. And he was just amazed by that. He said it was, it was, the beauty uh, was staggering of this place. Uh, well, you know, it cost some bucks to build those cathedrals, and they're everywhere in Europe. You know how they built them? Well, they came up with a system called indulgences. And back then, you were taught, uh, you know, that in order to get out of purgatory, now where's purgatory in the Bible? Purgatory is not in the Bible. There's heaven and there's hell. That's what you find in the Bible. Purgatory is not in the Bible. Purgatory is part of a tradition that Roman Catholicism teaches, but uh, it's not in the Bible. But they had this whole system of purgatory that when you die, you kind of go into limbo. Uh, well, you don't go into limbo. <coughs> to be absent from the body is to be present, what Paul say, with the Lord, if you're a believer. If you're not, you're in hell. But there's no purgatory. But as they built on this doctrine of purgatory, and they needed to build these churches, they came up with an idea called indulgences that you could buy, because you're in purgatory for X amount of years, and you've got to work your way out of purgatory. Um, uh, and, and so what you could do, this guy named Tetzel started going around, and this guy was the first fundraiser. <laughs> this was the first development guy. And... Uh, so he built on wrong doctrine, but he got the idea. Hey, you know, you, let's, let's raise some money. You can, uh, you can get out of purgatory, or you, or you, got, you know, you got an uncle in purgatory, you want to get the guy out, then, you know, write a check for, write a check for a thousand bucks. And at least you'll cut the guy's time in half. And they developed this whole system. Well, that enraged Martin Luther. And coupled with his study of the scripture, and he found out that just shall live by faith, he took a stand against that. So when the Reformation happened, and the split of the Reformation was the centrality of the Word of God, and the Word of God teaches that, that we are justified by faith and not by works, and not by indulgences, and not by writing checks, and getting uh, less time in purgatory. What happened was the Protestant churches, and Protestant means protest. If you're a Protestant, you're a protestant to tradition, See, the Roman Catholic Church teaches that authority, that authority is in the church, that only the church can interpret the word of God. And when the Pope speaks, he, spoke, he speaks ex cathedra, from the chair. He will write out, uh, he, he will come up with a papal bull. And, and bull's the right word. <laughs> because that's a human opinion, but it's not inspired by God. See, and Martin Luther would say, no, you take a papal bull and you hold it up to the word of God, and if it fits, you would accept the teaching. But if it doesn't fit, you reject the teaching. <laughs> Protestant churches then began, they were built on the centrality of the word of God. In the Reformation, they would bring the word, when they would have their service, their worship services, they would, the elders would bring in the word of God, and they would have it on a, on a platform and they would do it different ways. One of the ways is that one man would bring in the Bible, and he would hold it up high, and all the people would stand to show 
that they honored the Word of God and they reverenced the Word of God and that they were, more importantly, under the Word of God. Uh, did you see what happened here in Nehemiah 8? Uh, verse 5, And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up out of reverence uh, to the Word of God. Um, and then down at verse 8, it says, And they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. And we talked last week about the different principles that you invoke in order to understand and get the interpretation that's in the text. There's only one interpretation of any passage in the Bible. Just one. Until you have the meaning that was in the mind of the writer who was inspired by the Holy Spirit, until you have the meaning that was in his mind when he wrote under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, you don't have the right interpretation. There are not many interpretations. There's one interpretation. Now, there are many applications of that principle. Um, and you guys have ever taught? It's, it's interesting how you'll be teaching a principle. You'll be interpreting the Word of God, but the Holy Spirit applies that principle all kinds of different ways. That's application. Um, so, you have, you have here uh, in this passage, you have uh, in verses 1 through 8 the centrality of the word, but you have uh, the intellectual response to the word. Now, it's interesting the date of this was the first day of the seventh month. Um, can you imagine trying to explain to someone from another culture and from another time our system of holidays? Uh, it's, it's never really made sense to me that you can go for months and months and months without a real holiday. I mean, we've, we've gotten more over the years. You know, we keep adding them. But I'm talking about real holidays. Like, for instance, you can go a long, long time. Uh, you, you know, you got July 4th. And then uh, what do you got after that? Now you got Labor Day. Oh, it's Labor Day. I mean, that never made sense to me. You're not supposed to work Labor Day. But wasn't Labor Day originally for the unions? I think. Okay. Well, that's not a real holiday. I don't think. I mean, if you're a Teamster, you might like it, but, you know, you have too many days off anyway if you're a Teamster. And I used to have a Teamster's card, so I can say that. But, uh, so you go from July 4th basically to what? Thanksgiving? All right. So then that's a pretty good stretch. Huh? Memorial Day. But that's before. Welcome to our country. It's <laughs> all right. You'll do well here. Now, nah, I get them all screwed up, too. But then you got Thanksgiving. So you really don't have anything for quite a few months. Then you got Thanksgiving. And then right after that, you got Christmas. And you had a big deal. And, it was, and then right after that, New Year's. New Year's. That's kind of how the month of Timory was. Uh, Timory was, uh, was a big-time month, the seventh month on the Jewish calendar. Because you see, on, uh, in verse 2, the first day of the seventh month, what was that? That was what was called the Feast of Trumpets. This was a big deal. The Feast of Trumpets, what was that all about? Let me give you a description. The Feast of Trumpets was a festival that is mentioned um, in Leviticus 23, verses 24 through 32, and then Numbers 29, verses 1 through 40. Uh, 
this was introduced with the blowing of trumpets. Uh, we're not sure of the exact reason uh, why they did it this way, but possibly some believe that during the Babylonian captivity, remember they were in captivity for 70 years? That there was a Babylonian New Year festival and the Jews celebrated this to counter the Babylonian holiday. So that happened on the first day of the seventh month, which is Timri. That's when Ezra the priest got up. Now, let's jump down to verse 9. Because in verse 9, the second section, and see again, this is all around the Word of God. So the first section, verses 1 through 8, is the intellectual response to the Word of God. Now, beginning with verse 8, what we're going to see is the emotional response uh, to the Word of God. Actually, beginning with verse 9. Now, catch this. So they, they've been translating to give them the sense of the Scripture. Verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Isn't that interesting? You know, sometimes the word of God makes us weep. Has it ever made you weep? It's made me weep. Flip over, if you would, to 2 Timothy 3.16. 2 Timothy 3.16 is a great verse that summarizes um, in, in, in a real cogent way the ministry uh, of the scriptures in our lives. Second Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. Literally, all scripture is God-breathed. Where did scripture come from? You know where it came from? It came from God, and what God did was is that God breathed it out. He didn't inhale. He exhaled. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable. You should understand that. The Word of God is profitable. You're a good American. You're a good businessman. You're interested in profit. The Word of God always brings profit. Uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, is breathed out by God, and profitable. Now catch this. For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Where it says there that the man of God may be adequate, the idea there is completely furnished. Completely furnished, isn't it something? So you see the Scriptures... The scriptures give me everything that I need as I walk through life. Now, sometimes the scriptures are going to make me weep because the scriptures uh, shed light on what is right. The scriptures shed light on what is true. The, the scriptures will convict me. And I think that's what happened back here in Nehemiah. These people, as the, as the law was read, as the scriptures were read, they began to weep. But you know what was interesting? If you go back to Nehemiah, uh, the leaders... The leaders did not want them weeping. Now, that's really kind of interesting at first glance. Uh, notice, if you will, verse 10. Then he said to them, Go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared. They're talking about a festival. They're talking about a feast. For this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This, um, 
this festival that they were having, which was a, which was a feast, was designed to be a time of joy and a time of celebration for the way in which God had blessed them and the way that God had taken care of them and the way that God had uh, provided for their needs. It, it was tied to the agricultural seasons, to the harvest, to the plenty that God had brought in. Uh, and, and notice this, do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Why were some of them weeping? I think some of them were weeping because, um, because of their sin, because they realized they'd been ignorant of the word. Sometimes that happens to us. It's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. Uh, the, the word of God is a sword, Hebrews said. It's, uh, it's living and, and active. Um, the word of God can cut you. But when it cuts you, it's just like a surgeon. See, a surgeon will cut on you in order to save your life. That's what the Word of God does to us. They were weeping. Now, now, but they wanted them, see, they wanted them to understand this was a joyful time. Now, something that's not in this chapter, but that was included in the month of Timri, was the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement happened on the tenth day of the seventh month. And then you had a third feast that happened. Uh, what was the Day of Atonement? Uh, the Day of Atonement was a special day in the life of the nation. Let me ask you something. When, when you sin, and when you need to get things right with the Lord, and when you need to confess your sin, can you imagine waiting uh, to enter the presence of God? Uh, you know, it's really, you know what blows me away? Is that because of what Christ has done on the cross, we can enter into the holy of holies at any time. That's phenomenal. That's phenomenal. Um, yeah. Back in the time, how often did the people have exposure to the word of God? I wonder about the writing. Well, it well it did. It well it did because you see they had been they had been rebuilding the wall. Prior to that, you know, there was this there was this return to the land because they had been in captivity. And, and Ezra's job was to teach the law. Ezra actually returned from Persia to, um, to Jerusalem uh, many years. I don't remember exactly. Maybe 13, 15, 19. I don't remember the exact number. Uh, prior to Nehemiah rebuilding the wall. So this had been a period in their history where the word of God was not plentiful. Um, and this, and you're right, that's one of the reasons, you see. Um, uh, they weren't going through this when they were in Persia in captivity. So this was, see, not only a rebuilding of the wall that took place, but this was a rebuilding of the structure, of the infrastructure, of the spiritual infrastructure of the nation. Uh, that, was, that was a reason, sure. Not unlike what had happened years before under King Josiah when he discovered the law, um, one of his men discovered the law uh, in the temple, and they hadn't had it for years and years and years. Um, the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was on the tenth day of this month, uh, of the month of Tenry. Um, uh, flip over to Hebrews with me, if you would. In the book of Hebrews, we uh, and this is all written with uh, Jews in mind and with the, uh, 
the Old Testament background. I mean, Jews understand very, very well what we read in Hebrews. Look at uh, Hebrews verse 9, if you would. What did I say? I meant chapter 9. I'm sorry. Hebrews 9. Yeah, what verse? That's a good question. Because we don't want to read the entire chapter. Uh, look at, let's start at verse 1, and we'll hop, skip, and jump here. He says, now even the first covenant had regulations. That means the Old Testament covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. And then it talks about how the tabernacle was, was set up. Uh, it speaks of the holy place. Look at verse 3. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the Holy of Holies. It was in the Holy of Holies where the presence of God dwelt. Um, and, and they had, have you guys ever read Leviticus? And, and you ever get bored reading Leviticus? And you go, my gosh, this is so detailed, and this is so exact, and this is so, I mean, this doesn't relate to my life at all. That's because you're not a Levitical priest. See, Levitical priests, they never got bored reading Leviticus because they wanted to sacrifice to God and live. That was a big deal to them. Because, you see, if you got it wrong in Leviticus... If you, if you didn't do it right, God would take you. Uh, uh, Aaron was a high priest. He, he, had, uh, he had a bunch of boys, but his two oldest boys were Nadab and Abihu. Some of you, your wives are pregnant and you're thinking about some names. <laughs> you, you don't, don't name those boys Nadab or Abihu because those guys, you know what those guys did? They offered strange fire to the Lord. They violated what God said in Leviticus. You know what God did? He took them. Um, verse 4 describes the holy of holies where God dwelt. Um, look at verse 7. But into the second only, meaning the holy of holies, the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Now, that's, that's what happened on the Day of Atonement. One day out of the year, the high priest would go in with a sacrifice. His hands were always full. He had something in his hands because he had to make a sacrifice for him and for the people. Then he goes on and he says this, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves. Because, see, that's what was sacrificed before God. But catch this. Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. It was Francis Schaeffer who observed that every, every, every high priest who ever walked into the Holy Holies walked in with something in his arm except Jesus. Jesus had nothing in his arms because Jesus, the high priest, was the sacrifice. Huh. Verse 12. Uh, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, 
how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God. Now catch this. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Wouldn't it be great to have a clean conscience? Wouldn't that be a great thing? You know how you get a clean conscience? By focusing and understanding on the sacrifice that Christ made on the cross when he paid for your sin. Chuck quoted Donald Barnhouse last Sunday, two Sundays ago. There's, there's an old hymn. It's been around for years. And Barnhouse changed the words. Jesus paid it 90%. Uh, most to him I owe. Sin, sin uh, had, what is it? Sin had left a uh, crimson stain. He washed it dingy gray. That's not how the song goes. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. You see, uh, understanding what Jesus did on the cross sets us free. But it doesn't stop there. Because you see, basically, because um, what Jesus did on the cross, what he did when he walked into the holy place, go over to Hebrews 10. Uh, look at uh, verse, man, I could spend all night on this. Uh, look at verse, uh, Hebrews 10, 10. By this we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. No one, hey, you know what? There'll be no more sacrifice. There's no more sacrifice for sin. Jesus did it. We don't sacrifice. We have communion and we remember his sacrifice, right? Because it was once for all. Uh, verse 12. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sit down at the right hand of God. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. Verse 17, and their sins and their lawless deeds, I will remember no more. God only forgets your sin. God only forgives your sin. He forgets your sin. It's one of the most liberating things in all the world. Verse 19, catch this. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Did you just catch what that said? In the Old Testament, one man, the high priest, could enter the Holy of Holies one day a year. Because of what Jesus has done, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. That's amazing. We can go into the Holy of Holies at any time. We have access. We have access because of what Jesus did. That's unbelievable. And the more you grasp that, you know what that does? That makes you think before you pray. It makes you, um, you're in the Holy of Holies. That's astounding. And you can, you can go in, you can go in any time. How did you get that? How did you get that platinum pass? And I say that reverently, to go into the Holy of Holies. That's an amazing thing. Israel, in Israel, one man could go in. We go in any time. We have access through the blood of Christ. You guys know what that means? That when you, that when you pray, have you, ever, have you ever pictured this? 
you're in the presence of Almighty God, and you have His full and undivided attention. That's staggering. That is, that, that is, that is unbelievable. And you can live to tell about it. Because through the blood of Christ, you're protected, you're saved, you're made whole, you're made complete. You guys getting any of this? Are you real? I mean, are you? Because this is amazing stuff. You see? Uh, you, you don't have to do it on, uh, on the 10th of the seventh month. You can go any time. That's great news. Let's go back to Nehemiah. Uh, so that was the second holy day that occurred in this seventh month. The month of Timri. Um, and, and you saw the emotional response. Now, the point I was going to make is that the people were weeping, but it was the wrong time to weep. Because when they were weeping, it was in the Feast of Trumpets, and the Day of Atonement hadn't come yet. The Day of Atonement was the day of fasting and the day of repentance and the day of confession before God. That first festival was, was to be about the joy of the Lord, you see? So then, on the 10th, they had the Day of Atonement. But then they had another one. There was one more. And let me find Nehemiah, and we'll get it. Now look at verse 13. Oh, I, 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 missed, I missed 12, and I missed 11. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Uh, they understood the scripture. Uh, one of the things I didn't hit last week, um, you guys, uh, how many of you guys have King James Bibles? Okay. Most of you don't. Uh, if you don't have a King James Bible, why don't you have a King James Bible? Well, you'll probably say, because they're so hard to understand. Right? Well, the King James Bible was only done, what, in 15-something? 1611. He's a real King James guy right there. <laughs> 1611. Okay? So that's, that's almost 400 years ago. Uh, when they stood at the water gate and Ezra read the word of the law, and then the other guys that were with him went around and explained to the people and translated to give the sense. See, they were, they were, those were the words of Moses, and there was a thousand years separating them from Moses and that day. My point is, the word of God doesn't change, but language changes. We speak English, so did King Jimmy. But English changes and languages change as centuries go by. You spell words differently. Words take on different meanings. You guys understand what I'm talking about? So see, you have trouble reading the King James Bible. You got to go back. If you look at the text that Tyndale used when he translated uh, into English in the 1300s, it's pretty tough reading, and it's English. See, that was what, 700 years? They, were, they had a thousand-year gap. That's why they had to translate to give the sense, to give the meaning. Isn't that wild? Because they wanted to understand what was said. They wanted to get to the right interpretation. So when they understood it, 
there was an emotional response. So first they had an intellectual response to the Word of God. And you know, you can study the Bible and, and hey, you're going to find gems and you're going to find nuggets. And uh, uh, Chad, you're going to Dallas Seminary right now. And we've talked and uh, Chad and I'll get together and he'll tell me all the stuff he's learned at, at DTS. As you got these profs down there, they've spent their whole lives studying the Bible. And you're sitting there in class and these guys are telling you stuff that's in the text and you're going, this is unbelievable. The intellectual stuff that you're getting. And that truth is, is so great that you'll have an emotional response to it. And, and you might weep. You might get all excited. You might just say, Lord, I thank you. You're such a great God. I cannot... When I, when I heard for the first time in my life that when Jesus was on the cross, that he had paid for my sins, past, present, and future. Because, see, I was raised in a church where you had to get saved almost every week. At least I did. I'm sure the good guys didn't. But the good guys weren't nearly as good as they thought. You see, I was taught that you could lose your salvation, that you could, uh, yeah, you might have it Sunday night, but Monday morning, at least for me, I was in trouble. Shoot, I was in trouble on the way home Sunday night. <laughs> you see? And when someone showed me, when I heard a guy preach on, on Romans, that Jesus paid it all, because, see, I was raised that he didn't. Well, I knew he paid it all, but that couldn't mean that I'm forgiven forever. And then people say, oh, I don't, I don't teach that because guys, you go out and sin and live like hell. No, you won't. Not if you understand what he did. You're not going to trample on the grace of God. You see? See, that was an intellectual truth that elicited a great emotional response in my life. But see, it's just not intellect and it's not just emotion. There's something else, guys. There's the will. There's the will. And we find, we find the emphasis. See, in verses 1 through 8, you've got the, emotional, uh, the intellectual response to the Word of God. Verses 9 through 12, the emotional response. Verses 13 to 18, you've got the volitional response. Volition is will, it's choice, it's decision. Now catch verse 13 and catch the setting. It says, then on the what day? Second day of the Father's... The heads of the father's households, of all the people, the priests, the Levites, were gathered to Ezra, the scribe, so that they might gain insight in the words of the law. So you got, now we're in, verse 13, we're in the next day. So you got another group coming back. And who's this next group? Well, it's the heads of the, fa it's the, heads of the fathers, heads of the father's households. It's the heads of the clans. Who would this be? Who, who was head of the clans? Who was head of the tribes? Who? You were right. Yeah, it's, it's the fathers. You see? I want you to catch that. So the fathers come back. Um, the priest and the Levites, they come back so that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They were trying to get, they were looking for insight uh, for living here. That was a little humor that you guys didn't get. You got it? You just didn't, you just didn't respond. You need to have an emotional response, Phil, <laughs> to the word of God here. Verse 14. And they found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses. Now, this is wild. Catch this. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. They didn't know this. This was news to these guys. And, and they got all excited about this, you see, because, because this was a new deal to them. 
Now, this is on, this is on the second day of Timri. But what they found out is that another feast was coming up that month called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. Now, see, this isn't a big deal to us because we didn't live back then. See, Thanksgiving's a big deal to us. Christmas. This was big deal stuff to these guys. They, they read this and they go, wait a minute, there's another feast coming up. And the scripture says we're supposed to live in booths. Now, what's that all about? Well, quite frankly, it didn't matter what it was all about because it's what the scripture said. And by their wills, they were going to now obey the scripture. It's just not knowing scripture. It's just not having an emotional response to scripture. It's by your will obeying the scripture. What's this Feast of Tabernacles? Uh, this festival was observed on the 15th day of the seventh month to celebrate the completion of the autumn harvest. Features of this celebration included a holy convocation uh, on the first and eighth days and the offering of many animal sacrifices. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles was, was a time where they were reminded of how God provided for them in the wilderness. And what they would do, these people in Jerusalem, you go to Jerusalem today, uh, there are still homes inside the wall. And uh, as you're going out through Jerusalem, and, and let's say you're, uh, where would you be? Uh, anywhere, if you're on a, in all these hills in Jerusalem. And, and you look down and you see these houses and people, they're always out on their rooftops. Because that's just how they built the house. It's how they built them in David's day. Remember when David got in trouble with Bathsheba? They lived, they, they would construct these on the roof of their homes. And instead of living in their homes, they would live in the booth just for a period of time. They found out about this as they were reading the scripture. Now what's interesting is, look at verse 15. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities and in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills and bring olive branches and wild olive branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of all other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God and in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And the entire assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in them. The sons of Israel had indeed not done so from the days of Joshua, the son of Nun, to that day, and there was great rejoicing. Um, in actuality, there were different periods. When it says they had not done so, the idea is tied up the way we have it in, in verse 16. They had not done so with such great rejoicing. Because at different periods, they had done this, but they'd never done it with, great, with such great rejoicing. In other words, what happened, when they discovered the Word of God and when it was read to them, and when they discovered there was this new feast, they got excited. And they got into it. And they decided, you know what we're, gonna do? You know what we're all going to do? We're all going to do this. You ever, have you ever been invited to a, I don't know, you ever, you ever go to a Halloween party? And, uh, you know, some, some of you guys aren't into Halloween. I'm not necessarily either, but the candy's great. <laughs> but you know what I'm talking about. When you were a kid, or maybe even, I don't know, you ever gone to a Halloween? For, I'm just going to use this, all right? And I know some Christians don't like Halloween. Forget that stuff. I'm making a point. And my point is this. You ever been to a Halloween party, and it's a costume party, and not everybody wears a costume? There's my point. Now, that's kind of a drag. If, you know, you dress up, half of you are in costume, half of you aren't. And the whole point was that everybody would do it. But when everybody does it, that's a neat thing. 
when everybody gets into it. Did you ever go to a you ever go to a high school dance and nobody dances? You ever go to a wedding and nobody dances? So I'm a you know we're Baptist. <laughs> I know. When my uh, niece Becky got married, they uh, at the reception. Uh, they danced. And I mean, they all got into it. Even the Baptist, who couldn't dance. But it was contagious. And I mean, everybody was dancing. It was a riot. My dad was out there dancing. And my dad taught me it was against the Word of God to dance. Well, he didn't really, but he sort of did. You know, if you grew up in a legalistic church, you know what I'm talking about? For some reason, I, I'm really having this feeling I'm on thin ice here. <laughs> But you guys know what I'm talking about. So everybody, and, and you know, people that grow, grow, have grown up dancing, they don't know what the heck you're talking about. But you know what? That was just fun. It was right. Everybody got on. Everybody, it was a blast. That's what was happening here. They all said, hey, you know what? Let's all build these books. Let's all do it. And they did it out of obedience to the Word of God. So there's an intellectual response. The best guy that I am aware of, the best guy that I know in the original languages, the best guy I know, who has a degree from Dallas Seminary, uh, is an absolute philanderer with women. But I'm telling you something, he knows the Hebrew. He's unbelievable in the Hebrew. And he thinks he's unbelievable in the sack. And, and what he is, is greatly deceived. See, he has an intellectual response to the Hebrew. Sometimes he even has an emotional response to the Hebrew. And he's a married man. So when he sleeps with some gal that's in the study where he teaches the Old Testament, which he does, there is not a volitional response to the Word of God. And you've got to have all three. It's in our lives. Um, I want to go back to something that's in this passage. Because we're men, right? I mean, look around. We're men. I want to go back to verse, uh, verse 13. Then on the second day, the heads of households, those were the men, those were the fathers. That's us. They came back. And they gathered so that they might gain insight into the words of the law. Uh, it didn't take me long when I got out of seminary. First church I pastored, uh, the first Sunday I was there, there were 58 people. I think the next Sunday there were 23. <laughs> they, 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 they weren't real impressed with me. But anyway, I had this little tiny church. And uh, it'd been go this church had been going about 12, 13 years. It hadn't done well. And... Uh, I got, I got looking around, and it didn't look real good. And, and uh, anyway, and I'm, I'm, I'm right. I'm a rookie, so I start in, you know, and you're doing all this stuff and counseling and preaching and all this. And uh, you know, I, what I, you know what I began to realize? I began to realize because I had some people come in for counseling, and I would say within three, four, five months, what I began to realize is that. I'd say 90% of the issues that people brought to me in counseling had to do 
was some man not being a man in some way, shape, or form. In other words, in that home, if the father had been the spiritual leader that God had called him to be, we wouldn't be dealing with this situation. That became real clear to me real fast. The other thing that became real clear to me real fast was that uh, uh, hopefully that church was going to grow, but if we were going to grow, we needed some leaders. So what I did was I looked for four guys. I mean, I would have looked for 12, but we didn't have that many. I found four guys. And these guys, what I sensed from them was that they had a desire to know the Word of God, and they had a desire to walk with Christ and to follow Christ. So I invited those guys to meet with me. And what we did was, I think we met every Tuesday night from 6 to 9.30, and uh, they agreed to meet with me for nine months straight. We laid down some rules. First rule was, uh, if, you miss a, if you miss a session, you're out. That was the first rule. Uh, unless you were sick, I mean sick, deathly sick, you could miss. Or if, you're, if you were out of town business-wise and you couldn't get back, that was fine. But if you miss for any other reason, you're out. Secondly, uh, I'd give them homework, I'd give them assignments, I'd give them stuff to read. Because I had to turn these guys into leaders. Because if this church was going to grow, I had to have some men that could teach people and instruct them. So I had to teach them. So I'd give them assignments. And you had to come prepared. And if you came and you weren't prepared one time, you were out. You know how many guys out of the four we lost the first year? None. See, when you set the bar high, you know what happens? People come up to the bar. And, and if they didn't come up to the bar, we didn't want them anyway because we had to have a certain caliber of leaders. We had to build some leaders. So the first year, nine, I, so I had four guys, and what I was trying to do was get them to become spiritual self-starters. So I, I, I taught them basic methods of interpreting the Bible so they could read the Bible and they could understand the sense of the text. Taught them basic apologetics. Taught them basic doctrine. We just crammed it in in nine months. We had an unbelievable time. And then they graduated. And then the church had grown some, and the next year I found about, how many guys now? Nine, 10, 11? I found, let's say, 10 guys. And then I ran them through the deal the next year. And then the next year, I think I had 13 in that group. And you see, suddenly I've got 23, I've got, I've got almost 30 leaders in three years. Before, I had hardly any. But what I had to do with those guys was that I had to get them in the scriptures. You see? Now, why did I choose men? Because I'm a man, that's why. You know, Titus says that the older men are to teach the younger women. That's not what he says. Who's to, who, who is to teach the younger women? Older women. I'm not an older woman. I'm an older guy. I wasn't then, but I am now. See, the principle is that the older teach the younger. Uh, the other principle was we needed male leadership in our church because God has not called women to lead the church. God has called men to lead the church. Now, does that mean that women can't be in areas of influence in the church? You know I'm not saying that. We got all kinds of gifted women in this church. But God has called women, back up, God has called men to lead the church, ultimately. Uh, where is that leadership proven? If a man, 1 Timothy 3 says, if you can't manage your own, what? Home, you can't, how can you manage the household of God? You see, leadership is demonstrated in the home, then a man is promoted in the church.
it was my job to help build men in that church so that they could become spiritual self-starters and become leaders. And then, because see, when a guy starts getting serious about the word, what that's going to do is that's going to affect his relationship with his wife, how he treats his wife. How many of you guys have been impacted in your marriage by what the scripture says? If you haven't, you're either brand new to the faith or you're not teachable. See? It's amazing what the Bible has to say. When I get upset with Mary, and that verse will come to my mind. Husbands, live with your wife in an understanding way. What am I doing? I'm not doing that. Remember I said the word of God is a two-edged sword? Just cut you. I mean, it'll just cut cut you. That's 1 Peter uh, 3, uh, 7. You husbands likewise, live with your wives in an understanding way as with weaker vessels, and she is a woman. Physically, she's weak. And grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. You see? So that's, see, see the word of God, you know, all right, so I can say, oh, that's a great verse intellectually, all right, emotionally, all right, blah, 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 but I, I got to do it. You see? So when you get guys into those scriptures, that is supposed to change in, in this room, how many of us are married? Let's see your hand. All right. What that's supposed to do is to make a practical impact in the way that I live my life with my wife. Fathers, do not exasperate your children, but raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord. What, what I get out of the Word of God is supposed to impact me as a father. The way I treat my, my daughter, the way I treat my son. And what happens is the enemy wants to divide our homes. He wants to divide fathers from children. You know what's amazing to me? It's just, this absolutely blows me away. You know, Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. Some of you guys think it's Malachi, but it's Malachi. Some of you Italian guys, you're convinced it's Malachi. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So if you take your uh, Old Testament, and then, you know, that's the end of the Old Testament into Malachi, and then there's a blank page, and then you flip and it says the New Testament. Well, what we tend not to realize, because it doesn't say it, but there are 400 years between the end of Malachi and the opening of the New Testament. There were 400 years of silence when God didn't speak. If you were God and you weren't going to speak for 400 years, would it not be true that the last thing that you would say would be of some importance. If you were God and you weren't going to speak for 400 years, what would be the last thing that you would say if you were God? You know what's interesting and amazes me? The last thing God said in Malachi 4, 6 was, and he, when he comes, referring to John the Baptist, we know that from Luke chapter 1, verse 17, and he, when he comes, will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the children to the fathers lest I come and smite the land with a curse. Isn't that amazing? God is concerned, guys, about how we live our lives with our kids. He's really concerned about it. You know what? He's real concerned about how I treat my wife, and he's real concerned about how I treat my kids. I mean, he's real concerned. Because he wants our hearts restored. That's what he wants. 
And when you read about the ministry of John the Baptist in Luke 1, John the Baptist did two things. He prepared the way for the Lord. We all know that. But the second thing that he did, according to Luke 1, 17, he restored the hearts of the fathers to the children. If you will, John had a family ministry, putting fathers and sons, fathers and daughters back together. See, that's how the scripture is supposed to work in our lives. So, what the enemy wants to do, do is he wants to, he wants to get wedges in between. He wants to drive us apart. He wants, uh, there's going to be conflict. The question is, what do you do with the conflict? As much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, scripture says. Uh, that would include uh, your son include your daughter. Isn't it amazing how conflict happens in our families? And, and see, it's not just when you have kids at home. Some of you guys, you got kids have their own homes. Can conflict still happen there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Because now you got more stuff in the equation. Because your son gets married and his wife comes from a different family. And they do they 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 uh, do the holy days, the holidays differently. And maybe they're not coming to your house this Christmas, and then your wife gets hurt, and then, see, suddenly you got conflict. See, and then you got a division. And so what do you do? What does a spiritual man do? Does a spiritual man just sit back? Does a spiritual man just look at it and say, man, gosh, this isn't good? You know what I think a spiritual man does? I think a spiritual man takes initiative. And a spiritual man takes the appropriate steps in order to resolve the conflict. See? You say, where do you get that? Quite frankly, I get it from Nehemiah. You think back over what we've studied in this guy's life? This guy was a master leader. He had different people. He had enemies. He had different tribes. He had, and, and, and it's a matter of navigating them and walking them through life. That's spiritual leadership. So we're in the Word. We know it intellectually. We have an emotional response. And then by our will, then by our will, we've got to obey the Word of God. I, um, passivity is a great enemy to Christian men. There's a gal that cuts my hair. And uh, I, I went in there a couple days ago. And, you know, she just cuts my hair. And, then, and she's cut my hair, and she says, uh, she said, so you're, you're off today? Because I had on shorts and a t-shirt and, um, you know, just some tennis shoes. And I said, well, well, not really. This is how I, this is how I usually dress. <laughs> and I said, because I, I, I office at home. And she said, oh, really? She said, so what do you do? And uh, I said, well, I, I do a couple of things. I, I speak to a lot of men. I do a lot of conferences for men and I write books to men. She said, really? Well, what about? And I said, well, I write, uh, I write stuff to men about how to be uh, good husbands and good fathers, and it's all from a biblical perspective. You know, how not to cut on their wives and, and uh, leave their kids. She said, really? And I said, yeah. And she said, so what do you say to men? And I said, well, it's not what I say, it's what the Bible says. She said, so what does the Bible say to men? I said, well, I, first thing, I'd say the Bible says that men are to be responsible. She said, no kidding. And I said, yeah. 
She said, really? And I said, yeah. She said, that's, that's wild. I said, yeah. <laughs> she said, I've, I, I, I've been, uh, she said, I got a boyfriend, and I wish he was responsible. I said, really? She said, yeah. yeah he didn't like to work. I said, really? She said, yeah, he's been making minimum wage for two years. And uh, she said, I really, I just ought to break up with him. And I said, well, why don't you? She said, because I love him. She said, but I really worry about what kind of life we'll have if I marry him, because I don't think he can provide for a family. And I said, how old is this guy? He said, 22. And she, she said, but he's lazy. She said, he's got a new job because I went and got him the job. I said, really? And she said, now he's making 12 bucks an hour, but he's content to be there for the rest of his life. And he's really controlling, and, and he's real jealous. I said, yeah. I said, you know, that doesn't sound real good. And uh, I said, you know the kind of guy you need? I said, you know, this, the Bible says, husbands live with your wives in an understanding way. And then it says, and grant her honor. Because she had also told me that when I'm around him, my self-esteem just drops. I said, you know, what, you know what you need, Brooke? You know what you need? You need to get a man. A man. Not a boy. You need to get a man. Because you got a boy. And when you talk to him, you tell him I said that. Because <laughs> I'd like to talk to the kid. Because that's what he is. He's a boy. You see? And I said, you know, what's, you know what's really sad? Is that he's going to be that way when he's 40. If something doesn't change in his life. And uh, so we just started talking about all this stuff. So she's got lousy self-esteem. And she's a pretty girl. He's got lousy self-esteem, he's controlling, he's jealous, and he won't work. That's the antithesis, biblically, of what a man is supposed to be. That's a disaster waiting to happen, that's right. And it's already happened. And I said, I said, hey, Brooke, you know what you need to do? You need to drop this guy. He said, well, I don't. I, don't. She said, I'm, I said, see, you're afraid if you drop him that you won't find somebody else, right? She said, yeah. She said, I don't know any guys like what you're talking about. I said, we only need one. <laughs> but see, you got you to gotta look in the right places. And she said, well, what, what? So anyway, well, she's going to get point man, and we're going to start talking. And I'll get my hair cut more often. <laughs> huh? Yeah. So, but but you see, you 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 know what she's you know what she, this gal's dying for? She's dying. I mean, she was. I mean, you should have seen her face. She just couldn't believe that there could be someone who would seek to understand her, and honor her, and provide for her. And see, that was. You know what? I I, I mean, honestly, she didn't believe it was possible. Is that not tragic? It's possible. Uh, God hates passivity among men. He hates it. You ought to hate it. So here's our assignment. Okay? This goes for me too. Here's the assignment. When you walk out of here tonight, we're going to pray here in a minute. And, when, and, and here's what I want us to do. I want us to pray and ask the Lord to show us an issue in our lives where we've been passive and where it would be appropriate 
for us to step up and take some initiative. Not going to be a controller or change, but where it would be appropriate. Appropriate. Or maybe your wife has been waiting on you to take a step and lead. Maybe someone needs to be confronted. Nobody likes to confront. Nobody likes that. There may be a situation where you need to step up and lovingly and firmly confront someone because that's what's needed. Maybe there's a relationship in your family where there's a big division and the right thing would be for you to initiate and try to heal that division. I don't know. It could be a hundred different things. But these guys came back on the second day to get insight into the scripture. Not so that they could know more intellectually, but so that they could go out and do it. Fighting the good fight. Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight, keeping faith, that's the word of God, and a good conscience. They know the scriptures, that's keeping faith, but they don't keep a good conscience because they violate the word of God. When you violate the word of God, your conscience becomes hardened, your conscience becomes uh, cauterized, because you go on in 1 Timothy 4 and it talks about false teachers who are cauterized in their own conscience as with a branding iron. You see? So you sin and you don't listen to the Holy Spirit of God. So see, you get calloused, you get cauterized. So what happens is, so, so, so let me just take this to your point. So we teach the Word of God. We supposed to do the Word of God? Yeah. We supposed to have a good conscience? Yeah. That's abiding in Christ. That's walking with Christ. Holy Spirit convicts me of sin, of sin. I gotta take care of it. I can't let it go. That's abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is not passive. Abiding in Christ is following Him daily and loving him with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength, all your might. That's our job. We can say it 14 different ways, but that's our job. And we do have a job. Thanks. Appreciate it. Let's pray, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you, Lord, that you have enabled us to have our eyes open so that we can hear your word and that we can follow you. I would pray, Lord, that you would show us an area. We want to be very tangible tonight. We want to be very practical. We don't want to be passive. If there is an area, Lord, that you have uh, impressed upon us where we have not taken the right step, where we have not taken any step, I pray, Lord, that you would give us the courage to apply the word of God. Lord, it can happen a hundred, it can happen a thousand different ways. But Lord, passivity kills families. Passivity kills relationships. And Lord, we want to be men that act upon the scriptures. We want to be men that uh, act in obedience to you. So give us the courage, Lord, to hear your voice. And more importantly, give us the courage to obey your voice. And we pray these things in the name that's above every name. In the name of Christ. Amen. Thanks, guys.